Chapter Ten, Part One of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides, Part One. Through Hampshire, Berkshire, Surrey, and Sussex, between seventh October and first December, eighteen twenty-two, three hundred and twenty-seven miles. 7th to 10th October, 1822. At Uphusband, a little village in a deep dale, about five miles to the north of Andover, and about three miles to the south of the hills at Highclere. The wheat is sown here, and up, and, as usual, at this time of the year, looks very beautiful. The wages of the labourers brought down to six shillings a week, a horrible thing to think of, but I hear it is still worse in Wiltshire. 11th October. Went away Hill Fair, at which I was about forty-six years ago, when I rode a little pony and remember how proud I was on the occasion. But I also remember that my brothers, two out of three of whom were older than I, thought it unfair that my father selected me, and my own reflections upon the occasion have never been forgotten by me. The 11th of October is the Sheep Fair, about £300,000 used some few years ago to be carried home by the sheep sellers to-day less perhaps than seventy thousand pounds, and yet the rents of these sheep-sellers are perhaps as high on an average as they were then. The countenances of the farmers were descriptive of their ruinous state. I never in all my life beheld a more mournful scene. There is a horse-fair upon another part of the down, and there I saw horses keeping pace in depression with the sheep. A pretty numerous group of the tax-eaters, from Andover and the neighbourhood, were the only persons that had smiles on their faces. I was struck with a young farmer trotting a horse backward and forward to show him off to a couple of gentlemen, who were bargaining for the horse, and one of whom finally purchased him. These gentlemen were two of our dead weight, and the horse was that on which the farmer had pranced in the yeomanry troop. Here is a turn of things. Distress, pressing distress, dread of the bailiffs alone could have made the farmer sell his horse. If he had the firmness to keep the tears out of his eyes, his heart must have paid the penalty." What then must have been his feelings if he reflected, as I did, that the purchase money for the horse had first gone from his pocket into that of the dead weight, and further that the horse had pranced about for years for the purpose of subduing all opposition to those very measures which had finally dismounted the owner? From this dismal scene, a scene formerly so joyous, we set off back to our husband pretty early, were overtaken by the rain, and got a pretty good soaking. The land along here is very good. This whole country has a chalk bottom, but in the valley on the right of the hill over which you go from Andover to Weyhill, the chalk lies far from the top, and the soil has few flints in it. It is very much like the land about Malden and Maidstone, met with a farmer who said he must be ruined, unless another good war should come. This is no uncommon notion. They saw high prices with war, and they thought that the war was the cause. 12th to 16th of October. The fair was too dismal for me to go to it again. My sons went two of the days, and their account of the hop-fair was enough to make one gloomy for a month, particularly as my townsmen of Farnham were in this case amongst the sufferers. On the twelfth I went to dine with and to harangue the farmers at Andover. Great attention was paid to what I had to say. The crowding to get into the room was a proof of nothing, perhaps, but curiosity. But there must have been a cause for the curiosity, and that cause would, under the present circumstances, be matter for reflection with a wise government. 17th October went to Newbury to dine with and to harangue the farmers. 
It was a fair day. It rained so hard that I had to stop at Berkeley to dry my clothes, and to borrow a greatcoat to keep me dry for the rest of the way, so as not to have to sit in wet clothes. At Newbury the company was not less attentive or less numerous than at Andover. Some one of the tax-eating crew had, I understand, called me an incendiary. The day is past for those tricks. They deceive no longer. Here at Newbury I took occasion to notice the base accusation of Dundas, the member for the county. I stated it as something that I had heard of, and I was proceeding to charge him conditionally, when Mr. Tubb of Shillingford rose from his seat and said, I myself, sir, heard him say the words. I had heard of his vile conduct long before, but I abstained from charging him with it till an opportunity should offer for doing it in his own country. After the dinner was over I went back to Berkeley. 18th to 20th October at Berkeley, one half the time writing, and the other half hare-hunting. 21st October, went back to our husband. 22nd October, went to dine with the farmers at Salisbury, and got back to our husband by ten o'clock at night, two hours later than I have been out of bed for a great many months. In quitting Andover to go to Salisbury, seventeen miles from each other, you cross the beautiful valley that goes winding down amongst the hills to Stockbridge, you then rise into the open country that very soon becomes a part of that large tract of downs called Salisbury Plain. You are not in Wiltshire, however, till you are about half the way to Salisbury. You leave Tidworth away to your right. This is the seat of Ashton Smith, and the fine coursing that I once saw there I should have called to recollection with pleasure, if I could have forgotten the hanging of the men at Winchester last spring for resisting one of this Smith's gamekeepers. This Miss Sun and a Sir John Pollen are the members for Andover. They are chosen by the corporation. One of the corporation, an attorney named Ethall, is a commissioner of the lottery, or something in that way. It would be a curious thing to ascertain how large a portion of the public services is performed by the voters in boroughs and their relations. These persons are singularly kind to the nation. They not only choose a large part of the representatives of the people, but they come in person or by deputy and perform a very considerable part of the public services. I should like to know how many of them are employed about the salt tax, for instance. A list of these public-spirited persons might be produced to show the benefit of the boroughs. Before you get to Salisbury, you cross the valley that brings down a little river from Amesbury. It is a very beautiful valley. There is a chain of farmhouses and little churches all the way up it. The farms consist of the land on the flats on each side of the river, running out to a greater or less extent at different places towards the hills and downs. Not far above Amesbury is a little village called Netherhaven, where I once saw an acre of hares. We were coursing at Everley a few miles off, and one of the party happening to say that he had seen an ache of hares at Mr. Hicks' beeches at Netherhaven, we, who wanted to see the same, or to detect our informant, sent a messenger to beg a day's coursing, which being granted, we went over the next day. Mr. Beach received us very politely. He took us into a wheat stubble close by his paddock. His son took a gallop round, cracking his whip at the same time. The hares, which were very thickly in sight before, started all over the field, ran into a flock like sheep, and we all agreed that the flock did cover an acre of ground. Mr. Beach had an old greyhound that I saw lying down in the shrubbery close by the house, while several hares were sitting and skipping about, with just as much confidence as cats sit by a dog in a kitchen or a parlour. Was this instinct in either dog or hares? Then mine, this same greyhound, went amongst the rest to course with us out upon the distant hills and lands, and then he ran as eagerly as the rest, and killed the hares with as little remorse. Philosophers will talk a long while before they will make men believe that this was instinct alone. I believe that this dog had much more reason than half of the Cossacks have, and I am sure he had a great deal more than many a negro that I have seen. In crossing this valley to go to Salisbury, 
I thought of Mr. Beech's hares, but I really have neither thought of nor seen any game with pleasure since the hanging of the two men at Winchester. If no other man will petition for the repeal of the law under which those poor fellows suffered, I will. But let us hope that there will be no need of petitioning. Let us hope that it will be repealed without any express application for it. It is curious enough that laws of this sort should increase, while Sir James Mackintosh is so resolutely bent on softening the criminal code. The company at Salisbury was very numerous, not less than five hundred farmers were present. They were very attentive to what I said, and, which rather surprised me, they received very docilely what I said against squeezing the labourers. A fire in a farmyard had lately taken place near Salisbury, so that the subject was a ticklish one, but it was my very first duty to treat of it, and I was resolved, be the consequence what it might, not to neglect that duty. 23rd to 26th October At Uphusband At this village, which is a great thoroughfare for sheep and pigs, from Wiltshire and Dorsetshire to Berkshire, Oxfordshire, and away to the north and north-east, we see many farmers from different parts of the country, and if I had had any doubts before as to the deplorableness of their state, those would now no longer exist. I did indeed years ago prove that if we returned to cash payments without a reduction of the debt, and without a rectifying of contracts, the present race of farmers must be ruined. But still, when the thing actually comes, it astounds one. It is like the death of a friend or relation. We talk of its approach without much emotion. We foretell the when without much seeming pain. We know it must be. But when it comes, we forget our foretellings, and feel the calamity as acutely as if we had never expected it. The accounts we hear daily and almost hourly of the families of farmers actually coming to the parish book are enough to make anybody but a borough-monger feel. That species of monster is to be moved by nothing but his own pecuniary sufferings, and thank God the monster is now about to be reached. I hear from all parts that the parsons are in great alarm. Well, they may, if their hearts be too much set upon the treasures of this world, for I can see no possible way of settling this matter justly, without resorting to their temporalities. They have long enough been calling upon all the industrious classes for sacrifices for the good of the country. The time seems to be come for them to do something in this way themselves. In a short time there will be, because there can be, no rents. And we shall see whether the landlords will then suffer the parsons to continue to receive a tenth part of the produce of the land. In many places the farmers have had the sense and the spirit to rate the tithes to the poor rates. This they ought to do in all cases, whether the tithes be taken up in kind or not. This, however, sweats the fire-shovel-hat, gentlemen. It bothers his wig. He does not know what to think of it. He does not know who to blame. And where a parson finds things not to his mind, the first thing he always does is to look about for somebody to accuse of sedition and blasphemy. Lawyers always begin in such cases to hunt the books, to see if there be no punishment to apply. But the devil of it is, neither of them have now anybody to lay upon. I always told them that there would arise an enemy, that would laugh at all their anathemas, informations, dungeons, halters, and bayonets. One positive good has, however, arisen out of the present calamities, and that is, the parsons are grown more humble than they were. Cheap corn and a good thumping debt have greatly conduced to the producing of the Christian virtue humility, necessary in us all, but doubly necessary in the priesthood. The parson is now one of the parties who is taking away the landlord's estate and the farmer's capital. When the farmer's capital is gone, there will be no rents. But without a law upon the subject, the parson will still have his tithe, and a tithe upon the taxes, too, which the land has to bear. Will the landlord stand this? No matter. If there be no reform of the Parliament, they must stand it. The two sets may, for aught I care, worry each other as long as they please. When the present race of farmers are gotten, and that will soon be, the landlord and the parson may settle the matter between them. 
They will be the only parties interested, and which of them shall devour the other appears to be of little consequence to the rest of the community. They agreed most cordially in creating the debt. They went hand in hand in all the measures against the reformers. They have made, actually made, the very thing that now frightens them, which now menaces them with total extinction. They cannot think it unjust if their prayers be now treated as the prayers of the reformers were. 27th to 29th October At Burghclere, very nasty weather. On the 28th the foxhounds came to throw off at Penwood, in this parish. Having heard that Dundas would be out with the hounds, I rode to the place of meeting, in order to look him in the face, and to give him an opportunity to notice on his own peculiar dunghill what I had said of him at Newbury. He came. I rode up to him and about him, but he said not a word. The company entered the wood, and I rode back towards my quarters. They found a fox, and quickly lost him. Then they came out of the wood, and came back along the road, and met me, and passed me, they as well as I going at a foot pace. I had plenty of time to survey them all well, and to mark their looks. I watched Dundas's eyes, but the devil a bit could I get them to turn my way. He is paid for the present. We shall see whether he will go or send an ambassador or neither, when I shall be at Reading on the ninth of next month. 30th October. Set off for London. Went by Alderbridge, Crookham, Brimpton, Mortimer, Strathfield Say, Heckfield Heath, Eversley, Blackwater, and slept at Oakingham. This is, with trifling exceptions, a miserably poor country. Burghill lies along at the foot of a part of that chain of hills, which in this part divide Hampshire from Berkshire. The parish just named is indeed in Hampshire, but it forms merely the foot of the High Clear and King's Clear hills. These hills, from which you can see all across the country, even to the Isle of Wight, are of chalk, and with them towards the north ends the chalk. The soil over which I have come to-day is generally a stony sand upon a bed of gravel. With the exception of the land just round Crookham and the other villages, nothing can well be poorer or more villainously ugly. It is all first cousin to Hounslow Heath, of which it is, in fact, a continuation to the westward. There is a clay at the bottom of the gravel, so that you have here nasty stagnant pools, without fertility of soil. The rushes grow amongst the gravel, sure sign that there is clay beneath to hold the water, for unless there be water constantly at their roots, rushes will not grow. Such land is, however, good for oaks, wherever there is soil enough on the top of the gravel for the oak to get hold, and to send its taproot down to the clay. The oak is the thing to plant here, and therefore this whole country contains not one single plantation of oaks, that is to say, as far as I observed. Plenty of fir-trees and other rubbish have been recently planted, but no oaks. At Strathfield Say is that everlasting monument of English Wisdom Collective, the heirloom estate of the greatest captain of the age. In his peerage it is said that it was wholly out of the power of the nation to reward his services fully, but that she did what she could. Well, poor devil! And what could anybody ask for more? It was well, however, that she give what she did while she was drunk, for if she had held her hand till now, I am half disposed to think that her gifts would have been very small. I can never forget that we have to pay interest on fifty thousand pounds of the money merely owing to the coxcombery of the late Mr. Whitbread, who actually moved that addition to one of the grants proposed by the ministers. Now a great part of the grants is in the way of annuity or pension. It is notorious that when the grants were made, the pensions would not purchase more than a third part as much wheat as they will now. The grants, therefore, have been augmented threefold. What right, then, has any one to say that the labourer's wages ought to fall, unless he say that these pensions ought to be reduced? The Hampshire magistrates, when they were putting forth their manifesto about the allowances to labourers, should have noticed these pensions of the Lord Lieutenant of the County. However, real starvation cannot be inflicted to any very great extent. The present race of farmers must give way, and the attempts to squeeze rents out of the wages of labour must cease. 
and the matter will finally rest to be settled by the landlords, parsons, and tax-eaters. If the landlords choose to give the greatest captain three times as much as was granted to him, why, let him have it. According to all account, he is no miser at any rate, and the estates that pass through his hands may perhaps be full as well disposed of as they are at present. Considering the miserable soil I have passed over to-day, I am rather surprised to find Oakingham so decent a town. It has a very handsome market-place, and is by no means an ugly country town. 31st October. Set off at daylight and got to Kensington about noon. On leaving Oakingham for London you get upon what is called Windsor Forest, that is to say upon as bleak, as barren, and as villainous a heath as ever man set his eyes on. However, here are new enclosures without end, and here are houses, too, here and there, over the whole of this execrable tract of country. What, Mr. Canning will say, will you not allow that the owners of these new enclosures and these houses know their own interests? And are not these improvements, and are they not a proof of an addition to the national capital? To the first I answer, may be so, to the two last, no. These new enclosures and houses arise out of the beggaring of the parts of the country distant from the vortex of the funds. The farmhouses have long been growing fewer and fewer, the labourers' houses fewer and fewer, and it is manifest to every man who has eyes to see with that the villages are regularly wasting away. This is the case all over the parts of the kingdom where the tax-eaters do not haunt. In all the really agricultural villages and parts of the kingdom there is a shocking decay, a great dilapidation and constant pulling down or falling down of houses. The farmhouses are not so many as they were forty years ago by three-fourths. That is to say, the infernal system of Pitt and his followers has annihilated three parts out of four of the farmhouses. The labourers' houses disappear also, and all the useful people become less numerous. While these spewy sands and gravel near London are enclosed and built on, good lands in other parts are neglected. These enclosures and buildings are a waste. They are means misapplied. They are a proof of national decline and not of prosperity. To cultivate and ornament these villainous spots, the produce and the population are drawn away from the good lands. There all manner of schemes have been resorted to to get rid of the necessity of hands, and I am quite convinced that the population upon the whole has not increased in England one single soul since I was born, an opinion that I have often expressed in support of which I have as often offered arguments, and those arguments have never been answered. As to this rascally heath, that which has ornamented it has brought misery on millions. The spot is not far distant from the stock-jobbing crew. The roads to it are level, they are smooth, the wretches can go to it from the change without any danger to their worthless necks. And thus it is vastly improved, ma'am. The set of men who can look upon this as improvement, who can regard this as a proof of the increased capital of the country, are pretty fit, it must be allowed, to get the country out of its present difficulties. At the end of this blackguard heath you come, on the road to Egham, to a little place called Sunning Hill, which is on the western side of Windsor Park. It is a spot all made into grounds and gardens by tax-eaters. The inhabitants of it have beggared twenty agricultural villages and hamlets. From this place you go across a corner of Windsor Park and come out at Virginia Water. To Egham is then about two miles. A much more ugly country than that between Egham and Kensington would with great difficulty be found in England. Flat as a pancake, and, until you come to Hammersmith, the soil is a nasty stony dirt upon a bed of gravel. Hounslow Heath, which is only a little worse than the general run, is a sample of all that is bad in soil and villainous in look. Yet this is now enclosed and what they call cultivated. Here is a fresh robbery of villages, hamlets, and farm and labourers' buildings and abodes. But here is one of those vast improvements, ma'am, called barracks. What an improvement! What an addition to the national capital! For mind, Monsieur de Snip, the Surrey Norman, actually said 
that the new buildings ought to be reckoned an addition to the national capital. What snip? Do you pretend that the nation is richer because the means of making this barrack have been drawn away from the people in taxes? Mind, Monsieur Le Normand, the barrack did not drop down from the sky nor spring up out of the earth. It was not created by the unhanged knaves of paper money. It came out of the people's labour. And when you hear Mr. Elman tell the committee of 1821 that forty-five years ago every man in his parish brewed his own beer, and that now not one man in that same parish does it, when you hear this, Monsieur de Snip, you might have yet brains in your skull, be able to estimate the effects of what has produced the barrack. Yet barracks there must be, or Gatton and old Sarum must fall, and the fall of these would break poor Mr. Canning's heart. 8th November, from London to Egham in the evening. 9th November. Started at daybreak in a hazy frost for Reading. The horses' manes and ears covered with the hoar before we got across Windsor Park, which appeared to be a blackguard soil pretty much like Hounslow Heath, only not flat. A very large part of the park is covered with heath or rushes, sure sign of execrable soil. But the roads are such as might have been made by Solomon. A greater than Solomon is here, someone may exclaim. Of that I know nothing, I am but a traveller, and the roads in this park are beautiful indeed. My servant, whom I brought from amongst the hills and flints of Uphusband, must certainly have thought himself in paradise as he was going through the park. If I had told him that the buildings and the labourers clothes and meals at Uphusband were the worse for those pretty roads with edgings cut to the line, he would have wondered at me, I dare say. It would nevertheless have been perfectly true, and this is a philosophy of a much more useful sort than that which is taught by the Edinburgh reviewers. When you get through the park you come to Wingfield, and then, bound for Reading, you go through Binfield, which is ten miles from Egham, and as many from Reading. At Binfield I stopped to breakfast, at a very nice country inn called the Stag and Hounds. Here you go along on the north border of that villainous tract of country that I passed over, in going from Oakingham to Egham. Much of the land even here is but newly enclosed, and it was really not worth a straw before it was loaded with the fruit of the labour of the people living in the parts of the country distant from the fund when. What injustice! What unnatural changes! Such things cannot be, without producing convulsion in the end. A road as smooth as a die, a real stock-jobber's road, brought us to Reading by eleven o'clock. We dined at one, and very much pleased I was with the company. I have seldom seen a number of persons assembled together, whose approbation I valued more than that of the company of this day. Last year the Prime Minister said that his speech, the grand speech, was rendered necessary by the pains that had been taken in different parts of the country, to persuade the farmers that the distress had arisen out of the measures of the government, and not from overproduction. To be sure I had taken some pains to remove that stupid notion about overproduction from the minds of the farmers. But did the stern path-man succeed in counteracting the effect of my efforts? Not he, indeed. And after his speech was made and sent forth cheek by jowl with that of the sane Castlereagh of hole-digging memory, the truths inculcated by me were only the more manifest. This has been a fine meeting at Reading. I feel very proud of it. The morning was fine for me to ride in, and the rain began as soon as I was housed. I came on horseback forty miles, slept on the road, and finished my harangue at the end of twenty-two hours from leaving Kensington, and I cannot help saying that is pretty well for old Cobbett. I am delighted with the people that I have seen at Reading. Their kindness to me is nothing in my estimation compared with the sense and spirit which they appear to possess. It is curious to observe how things have worked with me. That combination, that sort of instinctive union, which has existed for so many years amongst all the parties to keep me down generally, and particularly, as the county club called it, to keep me out of Parliament at any rate, 
This combination has led to the present haranguing system, which in some sort supplies the place of a seat in Parliament. It may be said, indeed, that I have not the honour to sit in the same room with those great reformers, Lord John Russell, Sir Massey Lopez, and his guest Sir Francis Burdett, but man's happiness here below is never perfect, and there may be besides people to believe that a man ought not to break his heart on account of being shut out of such company, especially when he can find such company as I have this day found at Reading. 10th November. Went from Reading through Aldermaston for Berkeley. The rain has been very heavy, and the water was a good deal out. Here on my way I got upon Crookham Common again, which is a sort of continuation of the wretched country about Oakingham. From Highclere I looked one day over the flat towards Marlborough, and I there saw some rascally heaths, so that this villainous tract extends from east to west, with more or less of exceptions, from Hounslow to Hungerford. From north to south it extends from Binfield, which cannot be far from the borders of Buckinghamshire, to the south downs of Hampshire, and terminates somewhere between Liphook and Petersfield, after stretching over Hindhead, which is certainly the most villainous spot that God ever made. Our ancestors do indeed seem to have ascribed its formation to another power, for the most celebrated part of it is called the Devil's Punch-Pole. In this tract of country there are certainly some very beautiful spots, but these are very few in number except where the chalk hills run into the tract. The neighbourhood of Godalming ought hardly to be considered as an exception, for there you are just on the outside of the tract and begin to enter on the wheels, that is to say, clay woodlands. All the part of Berkshire of which I have been recently passing over, if I accept the tract from Reading to Crookham, is very bad land and a very ugly country. 11th November. Up husband once more, and for the sixth time this year, over the North Hampshire hills, which, notwithstanding their everlasting flints, I like very much. As you ride along, even in a green lane, the horse's feet make a noise like hammering. It seems as if you were riding on a mass of iron. Yet the soil is good, and bears some of the best wheat in England. All these high, and indeed all chalky lands, are excellent for sheep. But on the top of some of these hills there are as fine meadows as I ever saw. Past a richer, perhaps, than that about Swindon in the north of Wiltshire. And the singularity is that this pasture is on the very tops of these lofty hills, from which you can see the Isle of Wight. There is a stiff loam in some places twenty feet deep, on a bottom of chalk. There the grass grows so finely there is no apparent wetness in the land. The wells are more than three hundred feet deep. The main part of the water, for all uses, comes from the clouds, and indeed these are pretty constant companions of these chalk hills, which are very often enveloped in clouds and wet, when it is sunshine down at Berkeley or up husband. They manure the land here by digging wells in the fields and bringing up the chalk, which they spread about on the land, and which, being free chalk, is reduced to powder by the frosts. A considerable portion of the land is covered with wood, and, as in the clearing of the land, the clearers followed the good soil, without regard to shape of fields, the forms of the woods are of endless variety, which added to the never-ceasing inequalities of the surface of the whole makes this, like all the others of the same description, a very pleasant country. 17th November. Set off from Uphusband for Hambledon. The first place I had to get to was Whitchurch. On my way, and at a short distance from Uphusband, down the valley, I went through a village called Bourne, which takes its name from the water that runs down this valley. A Bourne, in the language of our forefathers, seems to be a river, which is part of the year without water. There is one of these bournes down this pretty valley. It has generally no water till towards spring, and then it runs for several months. It is the same at the Candovers as you go across the downs from Odiham to Winchester. The little village of Bourne, therefore, takes its name from its situation. Then there are two Hurstbournes, one above and one below this village of Bourne. Hurst means, I believe, a forest. 
there were doubtless one of those on each side of Bourne, and when they became villages, the one above was called Uphurstbourne, and the one below Downhurstbourne, which names have become Uphusband and Downhusband. The lawyers, therefore, who to the immortal honour of high blood and Norman descent, are making such a pretty story out for the Lord Chancellor, relative to a noble peer who voted for the bill against the Queen, or to leave off calling the seat of the noble person Hurstburn, for it is at Downhurstbourne where he lives, and where he was visited by Dr. Bankhead. Whitchurch is a small town, but famous for being the place where the paper has been made for the borough-bank. I passed by the mill on my way out to get upon the downs to go to Alresford, where I intended to sleep. I hope the time will come when a monument will be erected where that mill stands, and when on that monument will be inscribed the curse of England. This spot ought to be held accursed in all time henceforth and for evermore. It has been the spot from which have sprung more and greater mischiefs than ever plagued mankind before. However, the evils now appear to be fast recoiling on the merciless authors of them, and therefore one beholds the scene of paper-making with a less degree of rage than formerly. My blood used to boil when I thought of the wretches who carried on and supported the system. It does not boil now when I think of them. The curse which they intended solely for others is now falling on themselves, and I smile at their sufferings. Blasphemy! Atheism! Who can be an atheist that sees how justly these wretches are treated, with what exact measure they are receiving the evils which they inflicted on others for a time, and which they intended to inflict on them for ever? If indeed the monsters had continued to prosper, one might have been an atheist. The true history of the rise, progress, and fall of these monsters, of their power, their crimes, and their punishment, will do more than has been done before to put an end to the doubts of those who have doubts upon this subject. Quitting Whitchurch, I went off to the left out of the Winchester Road, got out upon the highlands, took an observation, as the sailors call it, and off I rode in a straight line over hedge and ditch towards the rising ground between Stratton Park and Mitchell Deaver Wood. But before I reached this point I found some wet meadows and some running water, in my way, in a little valley running up from the Turnpike Road to a little place called West Stratton. I therefore turned to my left, went down to the Turnpike, went a little way along it, then turned to my left, went along by Stratton Park Pales, down East Stratton Street, and then on towards the Grange Park. Stratton Park is the seat of Sir Thomas Baring, who has here several thousands of acres of land, who has the living of Mitchell Deaver, to which I think Northington and Swallowfield are joined. Above all, he has Mitchell Deaver Wood, which they say contains a thousand acres, and which is one of the finest oak woods in England. This large and very beautiful estate must have belonged to the church at the time of Henry VIII's Reformation. It was, I believe, given by him to the family of Russell, and it was by them sold to Sir Francis Baring about twenty years ago. Upon the whole, all things considered, the change is for the better. Sir Thomas Baring would not have moved, nay, he did not move, for the pardon of Lopez, while he left Joseph Swan in jail for four years and a half, without so much as hinting at Swan's case. Yea, verily, I would rather see this estate in the hands of Sir Thomas Baring than in those of Lopez's friend. Besides, it seems to be acknowledged that any title is as good as those derived from the old wife-killer. Castlereagh, when the Whigs talked in a rather rude manner about the sinecure places and pensions, told them that the title of the sinecure man or woman was as good as the titles of the Duke of Bedford. This was plagiarism, to be sure. For Burke had begun it. He called the Duke the Leviathan of Grants, and seemed to hint at the propriety of overhauling them a little. When the men of Kent petitioned for a just reduction of the national debt, Lord John Russell, with that wisdom for which he is renowned, reprobated the prayer. But having done this in terms not sufficiently unqualified and strong, and having made use of a word of equivocal meaning, the man that cut his own throat at North Cray pitched on upon him and told him that the fund-holder had as much right to his dividends as the Duke of Bedford had to his estates. 
Upon this the noble reformer and advocate for Lopez mended his expressions, and really said what the North Cray philosopher said he ought to say. Come, come, Mitchell Deaver Wood is in very proper hands. A little girl, of whom I asked my way down into East Stratton, and who was dressed in a camlet gown, white apron, and plaid cloak, it was Sunday, and who had a book in her hand, told me that Lady Baring gave her the clothes, and had her taught to read and to sing hymns and spiritual songs. As I came through the Strattons, I saw not less than a dozen girls clad in this same way. It is impossible not to believe that this is done with a good motive, but it is possible not to believe that it is productive of good. It must create hypocrites, and hypocrisy is the great sin of the age. Society is in a queer state when the rich think that they must educate the poor in order to ensure their own safety. For this at bottom is the great motive now at work in pushing on the education scheme, though in this particular case, perhaps, there may be a little enthusiasm at work. When persons are glutted with riches, when they have their fill of them, when they are surfeited of all earthly pursuits, they are very apt to begin to think about the next world, and the moment they begin to think of that, they begin to look over the account that they shall have to present, hence a far greater part of what are called charities. But it is the business of governments to take care that there shall be very little of this glutting with riches, and very little need of charities. From Stratton I went on to Northington Down, then round to the south of the Grange Park, Alex Bearings, down to Abbotson, and over some pretty little green hills to Alresford, which is a nice little town of itself, but which presents a singularly beautiful view from the last little hill coming from Abbotson. I could not pass by the Grange Park without thinking of Lord and Lady Henry Stuart, whose lives and deaths surpassed what we read of in the most sentimental romances. Very few things that I have met with in my life ever filled me with sorrow, equal to that which I felt at the death of this most virtuous and most amiable pair. It began raining soon after I got to Alresford, and rained all the evening. I heard here that a requisition for a county meeting was in the course of being signed in different parts of the county. They mean to petition for reform, I hope. At any rate, I intend to go to see what they do. I saw the parsons at the county meeting in 1817. I should like of all things to see them at another meeting now. These are the persons that I have most steadily in my eye. The war and the debt were for the tithes and the boroughs. These must stand or fall together now. I always told the parsons that they were the greatest fools in the world to put the tithes on board the same boat with the boroughs. I told them so in 1817, and I fancy they will soon see all about it. November 18th. Came from Alresford to Hambledon through Titchburn, Cheriton, Bowworth, Kilmston, and Exton. This is all a high, hard, dry, fox-hunting country, like that, indeed, over which I came yesterday. At Titchburn there is a park and great house, as the country people call it. The place belongs, I believe, to a Sir Somebody Titchbourne, a family very likely half as old as the name of the village, which, however, partly takes its name from the bourne that runs down the valley. I thought, as I was riding alongside of this park, that I had heard good of this family of Titchbourne, and I therefore saw the park pales with sorrow. There is not more than one pale in a yard in those that remain, and the rails and posts and all seem tumbling down. This park paling is perfectly typical of those of the landlords who are not tax-eaters. They are wasting away very fast. The tax-eating landlords think to swim out the gale. They are deceived. They are deluded by their own greedness. Kilmston was my next place after Titchbourne, but I wanted to go to Bowworth, so that I had to go through Cheriton, a little hard iron village, where all seems to be as old as the hills that surround it. In coming along you see Titchbourne Church away to the right, on the side of the hill. A very pretty little view, and this, though such a hard country, is a pretty country. At Cheriton I found a grand camp of gypsies, just upon the move towards Alleford. 
I had met some of the scouts first, and afterwards the advance guard, and here the main body was getting in motion. One of the scouts that I met was a young woman, who I am sure was six feet high. There were two or three more in the camp of about the same height, and some most strapping fellows of men. It is curious that this race should have preserved their dark skin and coal-black, straight and coarse hair, very much like that of the American Indians. I mean the hair, for the skin has nothing of the copper colour, as that of the Indians has. It is not either of the mulatto caste, that is to say, there is no yellow in it. It is a black mixed with our English colours of pale or red, and the features are small, like those of the girls in Sussex, and often singularly pretty. The tall girl that I met at Titchbourne, who had a huckster basket on her arm, had most beautiful features. I pulled up my horse and said, "'Can you tell me my fortune, my dear?' She answered in the negative, giving me a look at the same time that seemed to say it was too late, and that if I had been thirty years younger she might have seen a little what she could do with me. It is, all circumstances considered, truly surprising, that this race should have preserved so perfectly all its distinctive marks. I came on to Beworth to inquire after the family of a worthy old farmer, whom I knew there some years ago, and of whose death I had heard at Alresford. A bridle road over some fields and through a coppice took me to Kilmston, formerly a large village but now moulded into two farms, and a few miserable tumble-down houses for the labourers. Here is a house that was formerly the residence of the landlord of the place, but is now occupied by one of the farmers. This is a fine country for fox-hunting, and Kilmston belonged to a Mr. Ridge who was a famous fox-hunter, and who is accused of having spent his fortune in that way. But what do people mean? He had a right to spend his income, as his fathers had done before him. It was the pit system and not the fox-hunting that took away the principal. The place now belongs to a Mr. Long, whose origin I cannot find out. From Kilmston I went right over the downs to the top of a hill called Beacon Hill, which is one of the loftiest hills in the country. Here you can see the Isle of Wight in detail, a fine sweep of the sea, also away into Sussex and over the New Forest into Dorsetshire. Just below you to the east you look down upon the village of Exton, and you can see up this valley, which is called a bourne too, as far as West Meon, and down it as far as Soberton. Corhampton, Warnford, Meon, Stoke, and Droxford come within these two points, so that here are six villages on this bourne within the space of about five miles. On the other side of the main valley down which the bourne runs, and opposite Beacon Hill, is another such a hill which they call Old Winchester Hill. On the top of this hill there was once a camp, or rather fortress, and the ramparts are now pretty nearly as visible as ever. The same is to be seen on the Beacon Hill at Highclere. These ramparts had nothing of the principles of modern fortification in their formation. You see no signs of salient angles. It was a ditch and a bank, and that appears to have been all. I had, I think, a full mile to go down from the top of Beacon Hill to Exton. This is the village where that Parson Baines lives, who, as described by me in 1817, bawled in Lord Cochrane's ear at Winchester in the month of March of that year. Parson Poulter lives at Meon Stoke, which is not a mile further down so that this valley has something in it besides picturesque views. I asked some countrymen how Poulter and Baines did, but the answer contained too much of irreverence for me to give it here. At Exton I crossed the Gosport Turnpike Road, came up the cross valley under the south side of Old Winchester Hill, over Stoke Down, then over West End Down, and then to my friend's house at West End in the parish of Hambledon. Thus have I crossed nearly the whole of this country from the north-west to the south-east, without going five hundred yards on a turnpike road, and as nearly as I could do it, in a straight line. The whole country that I have crossed is loam and flints upon a bottom of chalk. At Alresford there are some watered meadows, which are the beginning of a chain of meadows that goes all the way down to Winchester and hence to Southampton. 
but even these meadows have at Alresford chalk under them. The water that supplies them comes out of a pond called Alresford Pond, which is fed from the high hills in the neighbourhood. These counties are purely agricultural, and they have suffered most cruelly from the accursed pit system. Their hilliness, bleakness, roughness of roads, render them unpleasant to the luxurious, effeminate, tax-eating crew, who never come near them, and who have pared them down to the very bone. The villages are all in a state of decay, the farm buildings dropping down bit by bit, the produce is by a few great farmers dragged to a few spots, and all the rest is falling into decay. If this infernal system could go on for forty years longer, it would make all the labourers as much slaves as the negroes are, and subject to the same sort of discipline and management. November 19th to 23rd. At West End. Hambledon is a long straggling village, lying in a little valley formed by some very pretty but not lofty hills. The environs are much prettier than the village itself, which is not far from the north side of Portsdown Hill. This must have once been a considerable place, for here is a church pretty nearly as large as that at Farnham in Surrey, which is quite sufficient for a large town. The means of living has been drawn away from these villages, and the people follow the means. Cheriton and Kilmston and Hambledon and the like have been beggared for the purpose of giving tax-eaters the means of making vast improvements, ma'am, on the villainous spewy gravel of Windsor Forest. The thing, however, must go back. Revolution here or revolution there, ball, bellow, alarm, as long as the tax-eaters like, back the thing must go. Back, indeed, it is going in some quarters. Those scenes of glorious loyalty, the seaport places, are beginning to be deserted. How many villages has that scene of all that is wicked and odious? Portsmouth, Gosport, and Portsea. How many villages has that hellish assemblage beggared? It is now being scattered itself. Houses which there let for forty or fifty pounds a year each, now let for three or four shillings a week each, and thousands perhaps cannot be let at all to anybody capable of paying rent. There is an absolute tumbling down taking place where so lately there were such vast improvements, ma'am. Does Monsieur de Snip call those improvements, then? Does he insist that those houses form an addition to the national capital? Is it any wonder that a country should be miserable when such notions prevail, and when they can, even in the Parliament, be received with cheering? November 24th, Sunday. Set off from Hambledon to go to Thursley in Surrey, about five miles from Godalming. Here I am at Thursley, after as interesting a day as I ever spent in all my life. They say that variety is charming, and this day I have had of scenes and of soils of variety indeed. To go to Thursley from Hambledon, the plain way was up the downs to Petersfield, and then along the turnpike road through Liphook and over Hindhead, at the north-east foot of which Thursley lies. But I had been over that sweet Hindhead, and had seen too much of turnpike road and of heath, to think of taking another so large a dose of them. The map of Hampshire, and we had none of Surrey, showed me the way to Headley, which lies on the west of Hindhead, down upon the flat. I knew it was but about five miles from Headley to Thursley, and I therefore resolved to go to Headley, in spite of all the remonstrances of friends, who represented to me the danger of breaking my neck at Hawkley, and of getting buried in the bogs of Woolmer Forest. My route was through East Meon, Froxfield, Hawkley, Greatham, and then over Woolmer Forest, a heath, if you please, to Headley. Off we set over the downs, crossing the bottom sweep of Old Winchester Hill, from West End to East Meon. We came down a long and steep hill that led us winding round into the village, which lies in a valley that runs in a direction nearly east and west, and that has a rivulet that comes out of the hills towards Petersfield. If I had not seen anything further to-day, I should have dwelt long on the beauties of this place. Here is a very fine valley in nearly an elliptical form, sheltered by high hills sloping gradually from it, and not far from the middle of this valley there is a hill 
nearly in the form of a goblet glass with the foot and stem broken off and turned upside down and this is clapped down upon the level of the valley just as he would put such goblet upon a table the hill is lofty partly covered with wood and it gives an air of great singularity to the scene i am sure that east meon has been a large place the church has a saxon tower pretty nearly equal as far as i recollect to that of the cathedral at winchester the rest of the church has been rebuilt and perhaps several times but the tower is complete it has had a steeple put upon it but it retains all its beauty and it shows that the church which is still large must at first have been a very large building let those who talk so glibly of the increase of the population in england go over the country from highclere to hambledon let them look at the size of the churches and let them observe those numerous small enclosures on every side of every village which had to a certainty each its house in former times but let them go to east meon and account for that church where did the hands come from to make it look however at the downs the many square miles of downs near this village all bearing the marks of the plough and all out of tillage for many many years yet not one single inch of them but what is vastly superior in quality to any of those great improvements on the miserable heaths of hounslow bagshot and windsor forest it is the destructive the murderous paper system that has transferred the fruit of the labour and the people along with it from the different parts of the country to the neighbourhood of the all-devouring wen i do not believe one word of what is said of the increase of the population all observation and all reason is against the fact and as to the parliamentary returns what need we more than this that they assert that the population of great britain has increased from ten to fourteen millions in the last twenty years that is enough a man that can suck that in will believe literally believe that the moon is made of green cheese such a thing is too monstrous to be swallowed by anybody but englishmen and by any englishman not brutified by a pit system to mr canning worth sussex tenth december eighteen twenty two sir the agreeable news from france relative to the intended invasion of spain compel me to break off in my last letter in the middle of my rural ride of sunday the twenty fourth of november before i mount again which i shall do in this letter pray let me ask you what sort of apology is to be offered to the nation if the french bourbons be permitted to take quiet possession of cadiz and of the spanish naval force perhaps you may be disposed to answer when you have taken time to reflect and therefore leaving you to muse on the matter i will resume my ride End of chapter ten part one